When you think of the acronym TLC, you might think of one or two possibilities. One is the learning channel, which has ceased to become a learning channel, I think. It's become more like a reality TV channel, more than anything. And you might think of tender loving care. Tender loving care. That's kind of what I want to talk about for just a minute here. If you are looking for a house on the internet, you might find a listing that says this house has good bones, but it needs a little TLC, a little tender, loving care. If you put in some uh, work dealing with surface issues, uh, that can make a big difference in the uh, appearance of the home. Research indicates that a similar and far more important reality in human beings that those people that are treated with tender loving care are benefited greatly by that tender loving care in fact children that are held cared for and nourished by loving parents or parental figures have some distinct advantages part of the reason that we are so much benefited by love and nurturing is that God has made us to be relational. We are relational beings. This is part of how God has made us. God has made us to love and to be loved. So many look for this love, and too many look for this love in all the wrong places. But as we continue our study of the book of Romans, uh, we're in the midst of trying to understand what Paul means, what God means through Paul, when he says that we rejoice or boast in our suffering. We boast in our suffering. We're trying to figure out what that means because it's not, it's not normal to boast or rejoice in our sufferings. In fact, usually we lament our sufferings. We can't stand our sufferings. We try to get rid of our sufferings. Sufferings bother us. They're kind of a nuisance. We just like to dispense with them. But that's not God's perspective for us, and that's not what Paul is teaching the church at Rome. He wants all of us to understand that the sufferings that we face in this life should come with a certain measure of rejoicing or boasting. Last week, we agreed with God that we can rejoice in suffering because God uses suffering to change us. We boast in our suffering because God is changing us. This week, we will continue to answer the question, can we rejoice in suffering? That is our task this morning. We will answer this question positively again. For this passage is convincing us that even in the midst of our suffering, God has expressed priceless love, eternal rescue, and matchless friendship. The first of these we want to understand is we boast in our suffering because we have experienced God's love. We boast in our suffering because we have experienced God's love. Look at the text, please, with me. Starting in verse 3, but we're going to pick up, um, we're going to start in verse 3, but really this point we want to see in verses 5 through 8. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. We're not 
foolish in hoping in God while things are difficult. Why are we not foolish for hoping in God while our situation is difficult? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For a while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 5, we want to notice that there is an internal experience of God's love. An internal experience of God's love. The reason that we can boast in our suffering is because we don't have to be shamed by the difficulty. We can hope in God because we've already tasted that God is good. And the reason we've tasted that God is good is God placed His Spirit into us. The, the, the verse says that God's love has been shed abroad. It's been abundantly or lavishly provided when God placed His Spirit within us. At the moment of our salvation, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, at the moment of salvation, God places His Spirit within us as a seal or a signature of what is to take place. I know I'm going to heaven because God has given me a taste of it. He's given me a deposit. He's going to give me the rest of that payment when I experience the glorification of my body, mind, and spirit in the presence of God. He's given me a taste. God shed His love abroad in giving us His Spirit. It is an experience and a recognition of God's love. Listen to what Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 says. Paul writes in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. By whom? The Spirit, capital S, of adoption. By whom we cry out, Abba! Father! There's an intimate personal relationship that the believer has with God that we can see Him not as this cosmic force or this horrific despot, this tyrant that will one day rain down fire and uh, lightning bolts upon me. Instead, I recognize that He's a loving Father and I can come to Him with anything. Your earthly fathers know how to give you what you need. When you ask for bread, they don't give you a stone. When you ask for a fish, they don't give you a scorpion. How much better does your Father in Heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? God has shed His love abroad in in us by His Spirit. There's an internal evidence or experience of God's love. The Spirit of God who dwells within us confirms God's love to us. And And God's Word tells us, now it Depends on your translation, how you read this. But in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 19, God's Word says this, We love because He first loved us. Some translations will say we love Him because He first loved us. That is true. But it is also true, we love because He first loved us. The ability to love with God's love only comes through God's Spirit. We do not own love. We do not master love. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, etc. Love is the first demonstration of the Spirit's working in us. It is a gift that we receive. We have experienced internally the love of God, and as a result, that love can flow through us. The reason we can boast in our sufferings is because we have experienced God's love, first internally, but we've also externally have evidence of God's love. There's external evidence of God's love. We're in Romans chapter 5, look at verses 6, 7, and 8. We've read this a number of times this morning. It's They're common verses, and hopefully as a result of this repetition, it'll be ingrained within our minds. For a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In these verses, Paul paints a picture of the evidence of God's love by contrasting it with the limits of human love. First of all, God loves us in our weaknesses. God loves us in our weaknesses. We're going to take just a moment to think about that. We want to notice it from a few different passages. One we'll turn to, and two will be on the screen. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians 2. How weak were we? How weak were we in regard to being reconciled to God? Just how unable were we when it came to being made in a right relationship with God? Because it says God loves us, loved us. He sent His Son while we were weak. He loved us in our weaknesses. Well, how exactly weak were we? to be reconciled to God. Well, I want for us to understand this. This is of vital importance. We weren't just a little weak, and we weren't just a lot weak. We were entirely helpless. Listen to what God's Word has to say about this in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were, what does it say? Dead! You were dead! This always reminds me, sorry, this is the way that my mind works, this always reminds me of Pirates of the Caribbean. Dead men tell no tales. They don't eat, they don't wash up, they don't brush their teeth, and they don't make a decision. They do nothing. They're dead. And God says, you, Robert, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. You walked in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Look at verse 12. Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having how much hope? No hope. No hope. And and how bad was my situation? I was without God in the world. I was on my own. How weak was I? The same word weak 
translated weak in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. It's translated uh, weak in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30. Listen to what it says. 1 Corinthians 11.30. Same word. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Same word weak that's used in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 is used in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 43. It is sown. This is talking about the body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Weakness. Complete. Absolute inability. The dead person in the coffin that gets lowered into the ground can do nothing. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. Well, why? The one that knows Jesus Christ benefits from the resurrection of Christ. He's the first fruits of those who slept. The point we're trying to make is, while we were weak, while we were weak, meaning unable, we were completely incapable of being reconciled to God. We have no strength to make it happen, and yet God, in His love, made it possible. God loves us in our weaknesses. God loves us in our inability. Back in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, again, what we're talking about is this is the reason we can boast in our sufferings. We can boast in our sufferings because God's changing us. It's good. We can also boast in our sufferings because we know that God loves us. How do we know? He internally poured out His Spirit within us, and there's external evidence of God's love in that Jesus died for weak people, incapable people, and Jesus died for ungodly people. God loves us in our ungodliness. God loves us in our ungodliness. This is what God means when He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is gracious. Because as ungodly as I was, God demonstrated His love for me in sending His Son. Look what it says again in verse 6. For while we were still weak, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God loves us in our ungodliness. Ungodliness, we saw earlier in chapter 1, ungodliness is the cause of God demonstrating His wrath. Is Paul confused? Because of ungodliness, God demonstrates His wrath. And here in chapter 5, he says, God, while we were ungodly, sent His Son to die for us. Is Paul confused? No, he's not confused. Ungodliness is the what produces the wrath of God. And God's love provides a remedy for that wrath. And that remedy is found in the person of Jesus Christ who willingly gave up the glories of heaven, took upon Him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. He being found in the fashion of men, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Jesus laid down His life for ungodly people like me and ungodly people like you so that God could take away our ungodliness. God loves us in our ungodliness. You know what he does here in verse 7 is he contrasts God's unfathomable, priceless, 
matchless love with the limits of human love. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Maybe you might find someone who laid down their lives for someone else. But usually, it's someone that they like, someone that they love, someone they care deeply for. When someone goes beyond that, they're demonstrating a different worldly kind of love. It doesn't mean they have that different worldly kind of love, but sometimes they can reflect that different worldly kind of love. You want to know why? Because every person born into this world is born in the image of God. And there might be times even that the most ungodly person demonstrates something, something that points our attention to an infinite God because we're made in the image of God. It's, while it's marred, there are evidences of that. Scarcely for a righteous person one would die, but perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But that's not how God loves. God loves beyond that. God loves the weak one, the dead in trespasses and sins one, and God loves the ungodly one. You know, he goes on in verse 8 to tell us that God loves us in our sin. God loves us even in our sin. These are hard things to figure out, you know, particularly if we're really theologically thoughtful. We think, okay, God, God and sin, these don't go together. Um, God is holy. Sin is the opposite of that. Um, God turns his face away from sin. We're very familiar with all these theological concepts, which is what makes God's love that much more breathtaking to us. That even though God is repulsed by sin, God willingly sent his son Jesus to die for people that were still under the control, under the penalty, under the power, and in the presence of sin. Verse 8, but God shows, this is a present tense, God continually shows his love for us. His love continues to be demonstrated for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is demonstrated now and forevermore in what God has done for us. What did God do? While we were sinners, while we were at enmity with God, while we were against God and underneath the righteous judgment of God, Christ died for us. And at the point of our turning from our sin and turning to Christ, that sentence of death, that sentence of sin punishment was removed because God replaced that sentence with something else, a declaration, a declaration of righteousness. As we think about God's love for us and loving us in our sin, we think of a verse like this, Psalm 103 and verse 14, which says, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. We, we, we think of a passage like this that really uh, this has encouraged me so many, many times, and I hope it will and does encourage you. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize. The word there is to feel with, to think through with, to, um, to consider. Who is not able to who is unable, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. The context of that weakness is sin. Jesus, our high priest, 
sympathizes with us, has compassion on us, even in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest who, while he himself was tempted without sin, cares about us when we're afflicted and we cater to sin. So it's a wonderful thing to know that God has demonstrated his love for us in a way that doesn't change. Because of the internal and external demonstrations of God's matchless, undying love, suffering does not put us to shame or produce shame, but rather it is a means of our boasting in God. It's a means of our boasting. God loved me in my sin. He loved me. Uh, His love was not superficial. It was not a mouth service kind of love. It was a real, substantive, sacrificial, and enduring love. Listen to it this way. Jesus loved me in my rebellion. I can rejoice in my suffering because He won't stop loving me now. He loved me at my worst. He's not going to love me when He's placed His righteousness upon me. I can boast in my suffering because I know I belong to my Father. I know that I have the righteousness of Christ. I know that Jesus is not ashamed to call me brother. I have a place. I'm a joint heir with Christ. We boast in our sufferings because we have experienced or tasted the love of God. As we move a little further in our passage in Romans chapter 5, we move to a third reason that we can boast. We boast in our suffering because we have been spared from eternal punishment. We boast in our suffering because we have been spared from eternal punishment. Of course, this is related to what we've just spoken about, so we'll be able to talk about it rather quickly, but he does bring up two concepts that we have to understand. He uses... Uh, the concept of justification as well as, well as reconciliation. Look at verses 9 and 10. Romans 5, 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? So, in verse 9, he talks about justification. Justification, which is by faith in Christ Jesus, results in being rescued from God's judgment, which in verse 9 he calls wrath. Justification results in being rescued from God's wrath or God's righteous judgment. In verse 10, he uses the word reconciliation or reconciled. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, he uses this term reconciliation, which is a declaration of peace between two parties that were hostile or at war. Reconciling two parties that were at host, host, had hostility toward one another, and reconciliation is a benefit of justification. How do we know that? Did I just make that up? No, he says it in verse 1. He says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, because of that, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. So reconciliation is a benefit of justification. Now, justification is a legal transaction. It's a legal transaction. God changes the records. And I always try to have the same vision in my head. We've got over here, Rob the sinner. We have over here, Jesus the righteous. And here I have all my list of debts. What are these debts? Sin. Disobedience. All this list. I have a list of debts. And over here, Jesus, a list of perfections. And when the Bible tells me that when I have come to to God through faith in Jesus Christ, all of my sin debt is removed. So it's taken from my account and placed on Jesus' account. And all of Jesus' righteous deeds are taken from His account and attributed to mine. Jesus became sin for us, though He knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. So Jesus removes our debt of sin and places, declares upon our record that we are righteous. It's a legal transaction. The records are changed. No longer rob the sinner, but rob the righteous. I don't always feel that way. How about you? I sometimes demonstrate some other way about me than rob the righteous. But yet the the record has been changed. My sin has forever been removed. Jesus' righteousness has forever been added to my record. God has declared Rob is righteous in my books. That's justification. It's a legal transaction. My record of sin is removed. Jesus' record of righteousness is added. I am declared righteous. Reconciliation is a relational term. Reconciliation is a relational term. So I've gone from hostility, from enmity, from war, to a declaration of peace, a declaration of harmony, a declaration of a right standing relationship. Now I want you to see this in Colossians chapter 1. He's just told us about the superiority of the Lord Jesus in verses 15 through 18. In verse 19, he tells us that in the Lord Jesus dwells all the fullness of God. This is an incredible statement. Verse 20. First, excuse me, Colossians 1, verse 20. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. There's the breaking down of hostility. Making peace, how? By the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled. He's made peace with you. It's a relational term. He's made peace in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. What what kindness has been demonstrated to us? God has declared us righteous, so our sin is removed. God has declared that we're at peace with Him. The hostility has been removed. Because God has taken away 
both the legal demands and the relational hostility and has declared us righteous and at peace, there is no place for wrath. Eternal punishment is not possible. His wrath, God's wrath, is not needed where there is righteousness and peace. And that righteousness has been provided by justification. And that peace has been declared because of reconciliation. This is the reason we can boast in our suffering. We can suffer, suffer, suffer all all our lives, really. Because we know what is to come. I will never, ever face God's wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Face tribulation here. Face affliction here. Face suffering here. Yes, we can face all of these things because we know what lies in the future. I will never face God's wrath. I will never face God's judgment because it's been removed. There's no need for judgment where righteousness has been declared and peace has been declared. Praise be to God. I can rejoice in my suffering because I will never taste God's wrath. There's a fourth reason in our text in Romans, and it's related. They're all related. It's one paragraph. There's a fourth reason that we can rejoice or boast in our suffering. We boast, I should have said in our sufferings, we boast because we are God's friends. We boast in our sufferings because we are God's friends. Look at verse 11. More than that, We also rejoice in God. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, I don't want you to balk at this declaration of friendship. I don't want you to think that this is the totality of our relationship with God. It's simply describing an aspect of our relationship with God. He is God, and so we are His creation. He is God, so He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our submission. That's an aspect of our relationship with God. He's God, and we come underneath His authority. This is a beautiful and important aspect of our relationship with God. He is our Father. If He's your Father, then you're His child. He leads and protects. We listen and follow. He's our Master. We are His servants. These are aspects of our relationship with God. But here, he talks about reconciliation. And all of this comes on the heels of his discussion with Abraham. In 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 7, which we're not going to turn to, Abraham is called God's friend. In Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8, which we're not going to turn to, Abraham is called God's friend. But in James chapter 2, which we are going to turn to, guess what Abraham is called? You guessed it. God's friend. James chapter 2 and verse 23, please. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now we've talked about that many, many times, haven't we? We've talked about it from Genesis 15. We've talked about it in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And it says, 
and he was called a friend of God. What's the basis of that friendship? Believing him, being declared righteous, and in our context back in Romans, being reconciled. Being reconciled. What causes this? What causes this friendship with God? Well, we're going to answer that through listening to the words of Jesus. John chapter 15, please. Beginning in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his, what does it say? Friends. Jesus laid down his life for his friends. Goes on and says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. There's a lot here, but I just, the, the three times, three times this text wants to let us know that Jesus considers those who believe him and follow him to be his friends. God uses relationship terms to further develop our understanding of our redemption. Yes, all the legal demands have been removed, but there's a relational element that God wants us to understand. We have entered into an eternal relationship with God. We've been reconciled. We were made, you and I were made for a relationship with God. And He has brought that relationship into possibility when we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation we are reconciled to God. So no matter, no matter what we face in this life, we can boast in God, for we are His friends. The question is, are you His friend? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ for salvation? Have your sins been removed? Jesus' righteousness added. Has God broken down the hostility between you? Hostility was coming this way. Between you and Him. Has that wrath been forever removed? Have you been declared a friend of God? Let's pray together. Father, You know what's right. You know what we need. We come to You this morning grateful Grateful for the work that you've done, the love that you've demonstrated, the wrath that you've removed, and the call and demonstration of friendship that you have declared. We pray, Father, that we would uh, rejoice in whatever we face. We know that this is hard sometimes. We pray your, your grace in our lives, and we pray, Father, that we would hold out to the world about us this offer of eternal salvation, that many would come to know Jesus as their Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.